Well, hello. Welcome to the Jazz Focus, a podcast that focuses on some smaller elements of jazz. Give a little more detail on some interesting aspects of the Jazz History Project. My name is John Clark, and I'm your host for this podcast. This is the third in our series of four. I'm hoping to do a whole lot more after this. We'll see if anybody really wants to listen. I hope you do. So this uh, particular broadcast is focused on something we've come to call Western Swing. And that's a style of music that's maybe a little bit outside of the mainstream of jazz, although the musicians who played this style, the ones we're going to be listening to anyway, thought of themselves as jazz musicians first. In fact, the term Western Swing didn't exist really until the 1940s. Uh, There were a lot of great recordings made in this style uh, in the 1930s, especially groups uh, led by people like Bob Wills and Milton Brown and our uh, topic for today, Roy Newman, um, were really very jazz-oriented. They were mostly uh, groups in the Texas uh, to Oklahoma uh, panhandle region. Roy Newman was uh, in Dallas for most of his life. And the music that they played was a synthesis of swing music, because that was what was the popular music of the day during the 1930s, blues, because there was a big African-American community down there, and uh, blues was everywhere, Uh, folk music um, in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, Uh, even some Spanish and Mexican music from down there as well, as well as spirituals and other types of things that fit into jazz of all sorts. So these musicians were primarily white, and they were playing in a style that uh, appealed to white audiences more than black audiences at the time. Um, However, they were very receptive to music from the African-American community, and many of these musicians in their reminiscences uh, recalled learning how to play their instruments and learning the style from having listened to African-American musicians on the radio and also from recordings. This was the Depression and uh, some of the ARC, the American Recording Company, uh, records that came out in the late 1920s and early 1930s of the black party bands, you know, that were coming out of Chicago, and even little groups like the Harlem Hamfats and things like that were very popular down in Texas among these musicians, and they copied a lot of the style that they heard and translated it into uh, the type of music that they were familiar with and the music that their audience was familiar with. Now, most of the audience down there was, uh, uh, as I said, white uh, people from field hands and, and, and farm workers, and not necessarily an urban audience, even though a lot of these musicians were recording and broadcasting out of big cities like Dallas and San Antonio and places like that. These were people who worked in the fields and the oil rigs and so forth, and they came in for lunch and listened to the radio at lunchtime, and then uh, in the evening and sometimes the morning and the weekends. And many of these bands had regular broadcasts two or three times a day for like 15 minutes at these different times when these people came in. And then that would publicize their appearances on the weekends for dances and so forth. And of course, down in the Texas area at this time, square dances were popular, uh, dances uh, that were uh, traditional in, in, in the back country, what we would call the hillbilly dances, although there were really no hillbillies in Texas. Um, that was a term, by the way, hillbilly, that was used uh, as a pejorative for this type of music. And the musicians got terribly offended when they were called hillbilly musicians because most of these musicians thought of themselves primarily as jazz musicians. As I said, Western swing as a term didn't exist until the 1940s. And by that point, uh, it came to represent not only the swing music that we're going to be hearing now, but Western music as well, cowboy music and so forth, which had become very popular uh, largely because of the movies in the late 1930s. 
1940s. So our topic for the day is a man named Roy Newman. Roy Newman was born in Texas in 1899. He uh, learned instruments as a, as a boy. He was actually primarily a piano player, although he recorded on guitar as well. And he was an entertainer. He worked for a number of radio stations in the Dallas area, including uh, WRR, which was the big radio station in Dallas, I guess, and he, he spent a big chunk of his career doing work for them uh, from 1932 all the way to 1941. He was a comedian, he was a singer, and did lots of things before he put this band together. The band came to be known as Roy Newman and His Boys. Before that it was called The Wanderers and it had some personnel issues and bounced around a little bit. And uh, it had some personnel um, in common with another band of the day that was recording all, or rather broadcasting also on WRR called Bill Boyd's Cowboy Ramblers. And that was a band that emphasized, as you might guess, the cowboy, the Western music a little bit more, although some of the personnel with Bill Boyd were also with uh, Roy Newman, including Bill Boyd's brother Jim, who was an excellent guitar player and who played some of the first electric guitar solos on record on some of these Roy Newman recordings. So Newman himself had recorded as early as 1929 on guitar with a group called the Three Virginians. He was on guitar, Dick Reinhardt was on guitar, Dick Reinhardt was another very fine guitarist, and a clarinet player named Holly Horton. Holly Horton was an older musician. He was probably born in the late 1880s or 1890 or so, and he's usually credited as being a ragtime style player. He has kind of stiff phrasing uh, that we would associate with pre-jazz players. However, he has a pretty interesting technique, and he was featured extensively on a lot of the later recordings. Uh, the two recordings made by the three Virginians are well worth looking up on YouTube. I'm not going to play them today, but they're very much in the blues tradition. In fact, they sound very much like an African-American group. Uh, sound a little bit like some of the uh, Johnny Dodds uh, groups that were recording at the time and uh, doing that sort of blues material as well. Very interesting things. So by 1934, Bill, uh, or rather Roy Newman's band, was uh, very popular in Dallas, and he was offered a recording contract with uh, Vocalion Records, which was a branch of ARC at the time. And he recorded a number of sessions between 1934 and 1939, probably about, oh, I don't know, well over 100 sides, I guess, that were ultimately released. And a big variety of music exists on these uh, sides, on these sessions. Some of them are straight-ahead jazz, which we'll be hearing a little selection of coming up, although jazz may be from a slightly earlier era. Uh, some of them were pop tunes from an earlier era. Some of them were blues. Some of them were country music things like Get Along Home, Cindy, Cindy, and the Chicken Reel, and things like that that would have been played, I imagine, for dances uh, for the country folk on Saturdays. They had to play a pretty wide range of material. When we think of the jazz bands, whether white or black jazz bands of the 1920s and 30s, generally each of those bands or types of bands recorded one standard repertoire. The white bands uh, were often not allowed to record their hot jazz numbers, even if they were known to uh, feature them on, on, on uh, live dates, and rarely was a black band uh, asked to play, for example, a waltz or a Latin number, even though they certainly played those on live dates as well. So there was a lot of segregation in the recording industry. Um, these Western swing bands, or, or pre-Western swing bands, didn't seem to have any of those problems. They were making recordings strictly to publicize themselves, and the companies that were recording them during the Great Depression, uh, Vocalion in this case, were more interested in just selling recordings, and they knew that the uh, core audience for these groups would buy recordings of anything the bands did, because that was what they would hear on a Saturday night dance, for example. 
So we're going to hear a little bit of the jazz repertoire of Roy Newman and his band. So I think what we're going to do is play a couple of tunes for you right now. Before I do, I will tell you the personnel on one of these first recording dates. This uh, first tune is the Garbage Man Blues we're going to hear from June 27th of 1935, and it features a fairly large band, a string band, uh, with a clarinet and a couple of other little surprises thrown in from time to time. Um, Art Davis and Thurman Neal were violins. Holly Horton on clarinet, Roy Newman on piano, Walter Kirkies on banjo, Jim Boyd on guitar. He also plays steel guitar and electric guitar in some of the sessions coming up. He's the primary guitar soloist. And then there is Earl Brown and Buddy Neal who play guitars on some of these sessions as well, and Ish Irwin on bass. So we're going to hear the Garbage Man Blues, and a little bit about that. Uh, the vocal is by Art Davis, who is one of the violinists here. This is a tune that uh, didn't have composer credit on the record that Roy Newman put out. Uh, it was actually a blues that was covered um, by several bands. Roy Newman was, I think, one of the last bands to do it. Milton Brown had a great recording of it, one of his first recordings, also Bob Wills. The lyrics that you're going to hear, Stick Out Your Can, Here Comes the Garbage Man, were taken directly from a 1929 recording by Louis Russell's band, the great uh, black band that was active in Harlem at the time. And the recording was called The New Call of the Freaks. And they must have been familiar with this record because the lyrics are taken directly from it. So we're going to hear this band uh, play Garbage Man Blues and two others, Rhythm is Our Business and Dinah, and I'll talk more about those on the other side. Lady, here's your garbage man out here. Man, I don't need no garbage today. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
well. Rhythm is our business, business sure is well. If feeling blue is what you need, try a little rhythm and you should succeed. Rhythm is our business, rhythm is what we sell. He's a guitar man in the band. In the band. He's a guitar man in this band. In the band. Say when he plays on his strings, happiness to you is what he brings. Rhythm is our business, rhythm is what we sell.
would hop an ocean liner just to be with Annalise. party music there. Definitely some energy going on. And this is the more jazz uh, inflected repertoire that this band was recording. They were recording other things at the same time, often with smaller groups. The uh, personnel I read to you earlier was the full group that went on through uh, the first two or three sessions that this band recorded, including that first number, which was Garbage Man Blues, which featured a rarity, a piano solo by the leader. And uh, that was kind of interesting in and of itself. So the next two recordings we heard, Rhythm is Our Business and Dinah, came from September 27th, 1935. Now, very often what happened with these bands uh, that were active down in the Texas area is they did not record with the frequency that the northern bands did. They may have made a lot of recordings, but they did it much more efficiently, I guess. They really only recorded once or twice a year when the portable recording equipment came or when they set up studios or when the band was in town, I suppose. And on a given recording date, they might have recorded eight or nine numbers as opposed to the three or four that were standard in New York or Chicago, for example. So Rhythm is Our Business was a, a tune that uh, was made famous by Jimmy Lunsford on one of his early recordings, one of his early Decca recordings. And uh, Lunsford apparently had a hand in writing it as well, um, along with Kahn and Chaplin, I guess, if we believe the, the record cover there. And this was a real romp uh, with a vocal by Ray Lackland. Now, Ray Lackland... Uh, I don't know anything about him, but he was a very <laughs> compelling singer in the Cab Calloway or Billy Banks style. And as I said, these bands were listening to African-American recordings from the early 30s. And clearly that vocal styling made a great impression on a number of singers. If you listen to some of the Milton Brown recordings, certainly some of the Bob Wills recordings, you hear singing that's very much like that. But I don't think anyone did it as well as Ray Lackland did. So his version of Rhythm is Our Business is pretty um, laid back for uh, his style. We're going to hear uh, some more uh, vigorous singing from him a little bit later. We also heard a bass solo and an early electric guitar solo from 1935. As I mentioned, Jim Boyd was the guitar player, lead guitar player in this band, and he was responsible for most of the guitar solos, certainly all of the electric and steel guitar solos that you will hear. And then we finished up with Dinah, the Harry Axt tune from 1925. That um, 
was sung by uh, a fellow named Buddy Harris, who was a very straight singer. I think he was probably just brought in for the session to sing the romantic stuff. Uh, hard to think of Dinah as a romantic song, but it was treated that way there. And uh, interesting in that tune were two things. One is that it featured the duo fiddles of Art Davis and Thurman Neal. Uh, in some bands, like Milton Brown's especially, the two-fiddle lead was very, very important. Here it was just one element of Roy Newman's uh, overall sound, along with the clarinet and uh, some of the singing and the electric guitar and so forth. The other thing that's interesting about that recording was the introduction. It started out with a violin solo, I assume by Art Davis, and it sounded awfully familiar to me, and I finally got it. It was the introduction to the Red Nichols recording of Dinah in 1929, and it was played by Jack Teagarden on trombone. And here, the violin copies the same notes, and they start out Dinah the same way. It's about the same tempo as well. So there's some interesting points, and as you listen to some of these Western Swing recordings from this period, you hear a lot of uh, interesting and sly little commentary that come in from other recordings from an earlier period in jazz. Uh, some of the uh, uh, Milton Brown recordings, for example, and even the Bob Wills quote some things from the Jovenuti and Eddie Lang recordings of five or six years before that. And as I said, this was not; uh, these were not known as Western swing bands. If you look at the original 78 Vocalion issues of these uh, uh, songs, they're usually called hot string bands or hot dance bands or something like that. Um, there was no real unanimity in what to call these groups. As I said, the musicians themselves called themselves jazz musicians, and uh, there are any number of reminiscences of these musicians where they got kind of huffy when they were called either country musicians or Western swing or something like that. They said, no, we are jazz musicians, and indeed they were. So we're going to play another triumvirate of songs here for you. Uh, these are also from 1935, and they're under the hot dance rubric. Uh, the first one is an original by the band, at least I believe it's an original. It's called The Hot Dog Stomp, and it's, a, as the other ones were, a very vigorous performance. This is an interesting tune. It's an A-A-B-A -A -A structure in the chorus. There is no verse, I don't think. It's just a chorus. But the bridge is very unusual. It's all chromatically ascending uh, dominant chords, which is, I don't know of any other bridge or any other piece of music in, in the jazz canon that does that, at least not at such length. And uh, it, it resolves back to where it's supposed to be at the end of it, but it, it, it brings some interesting ideas out of the soloist, especially Holly Hunter, the clarinet player. So we're going to listen to Hot Dog Stomp from September 28th of 1935, and then we're going to jump to two tunes from October 4th of 1935, 12th Street Rag and black and blue. So we're going to begin with Hot Dog Stomp. <laughs> Thank you. 
So that was Black and Blue, preceded by the 12th Street Rag, October 1st, 1935. Actually, October 4th, 1935. On 12th Street Rag, uh, we heard a, a, a version of Uday Bowman's ragtime tune that uh, was later made famous by Pee Wee Hunt. Usually that tune was played in a more corny fashion. Even Louis Armstrong with the Hot 7 sort of corned it up a little bit in places. But this one was very much uh, a four-on-the-floor jazz tune. And that uh, was a rhythm that kind of separated um, the Roy Newman band from many of his contemporary Western swing bands. A lot, most of them played in a fairly straight two-beat, which went along with the dances that were common at the time down in Texas. But Roy Newman would play in four from time to time. And that tune, 12th Street Rag, featured a great electric guitar solo, again by Jim Boyd, along with um, an acoustic guitar solo, I believe, by um, Earl Brown. Uh, I think he was the one who was responsible for most of the acoustic guitar work after Jim Boyd switched to electric guitar. And then Black and Blue was the Fats Waller and Andy Rizaf tune from 1929. And that supposedly featured Earl Brown on vocals, but it certainly sounded similar to the man I mentioned in the previous set, Ray Lackland. And he, um, you know, as I said, was very much influenced, obviously, by Billy Banks and Cab Calloway. And I would suggest going to look up uh, some of the other tunes that this band did on YouTube. If you look up Lonesome Road or some of these days, you can hear Lackland doing a Cab Calloway imitation. He actually quotes from the Cab Calloway vocal in 1930 on some of these days on the Roy Newman version of that tune as well. And that was from 1935. So we're going to play a couple of more tunes uh, before we wind down our Roy Newman salute here. The first one is called Texas Stomp. And this uh, was an original, I guess, with the band. It uh, comes from 1938, December 1st, 1938. So this is a few years after the ones we've just heard, and the band has changed a little bit. There's still a couple of violins. One is unknown, but one is Carol Hubbard, who is a very fine player. Holly Horton is still on clarinet. A man named Bill Staten has joined on accordion, which changes the sound a bit. Uh, Newman is still playing piano. Kirky's on banjo. Jim Boyd had left by this time, and he was replaced on electric guitar by Julian Aikens, who was a very good replacement, a very fine player as well. Uh, Earl Brown and Gene Sullivan are the acoustic guitar players, and Ish Irwin is still on bass. So we're going to hear Texas Stomp, and we're going to follow that up with a tune from the last recording session that uh, Newman did for Vocalion in June of 1939, June 20th. And this is a pop tune from an earlier day by O'Flynn, Meyer, and Wendling, and it's called Everything is Peaches Neath the Old Apple Tree. And uh, features largely the same band I just mentioned. Cecil Brower is also playing violin. He was a bit of a legend in Western swing circles uh, as a violinist. He had played with many of the fine bands, including Milton Browns, and he was a, a pretty well-schooled violinist as well, which was unusual. Many of these players were, were pretty much self-taught or had learned, learned on the job, as it were, but I believe he had some, some significant training. And uh, Harry Sorensen is the accordionist on this track. So accordion was uh, making a, its, its presence felt in Western Swing or these proto-Western Swing bands in Texas in the late 30s. So here are the two tunes, Texas Stomp and Everything is Peaches Neath the Old Apple Tree.
apple tree Peaches for me and my gal We're a perfect family beneath the old apple tree How I love her, how she loves me From the red breast up above Thinks that we're okay For he sings his song of love On the live long day Everything is peaches beneath the old apple tree Peaches for me and my gal couple of tunes that were more out-and-out out jazzy, I think, than the ones we heard before even. Texas Stomp was a, a, a romper of a, of a performance, just a string of solos. Sorry, the sound quality wasn't quite up to the other ones, but that uh, was the only source for that that I had, and it was too good not to put on there. With that uh, fine piano by the leader, uh, leading Holly Horton's clarinet through, and some nice violin, guitar, everything, and accordion as well. And then we finished up with uh, that... Uh, Old-style song, Everything is Peaches Neat the Old Apple Tree, and I guess that was Earl Brown singing uh, that tune. He certainly sounded different than the fellow who sang Black and Blue, but I don't know. And that also featured Cecil Brower on violin on that particular number as well. So we had quite a uh, little bit of an introduction to Roy Newman and his boys, and uh, as I said, this is really one of the most interesting groups from this period, I think. Uh, Bob Wills certainly got all the press, and uh, connoisseurs feel that Milton Brown's band was even a little bit better, at least in the early days. And then there were some other ones, too, that we may get to at some point or another. At some point, I'd like to play O.C. Stockard's band, which was uh, the group that rose out of the Milton Brown's uh, uh, demise after Milton Brown himself passed away his band broke up for a little while and then O.C. Stockard his bass player took it over and had some interesting soloists in that as well but that's for another program 
So I hope you've enjoyed this. This is, uh, as I said, podcast number three for the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark. Hope we've uh, introduced you to some new music that you might like. And uh, in this digital age that we live in, if you like something, you can always go onto YouTube or Spotify or any one of the digital music platforms and take a look. One thing that it's hard to do uh, these days is to read the liner notes. So I guess that's why I'm here. I am the live liner notes for these recordings. So hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you on the other side.